Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry. This is the 25th of June, 2019, and we're now going to catalog into the record uh, segment number six of our discussion of hepatocellular carcinoma. Today, we're going to talk about first a general biochemical and physiological paradigm, and that has to do with protein proteolysis. That is the partial or complete breakdown of proteins in the cell for purposes of mobilizing the fragments of that proteolytic degradation for multi-purposing. Okay, so when you get a protein and you break it down by using a protease, which is an enzyme, which has a specific sequence within a protein that it recognizes and cleaves only there between certain amino acids, then depending on where those amino acids are found in any given protein, you get a pattern of peptide products. And these proteases are really common in the cell. They not only help degrade and digest, so for example, dietary proteins, but more, much more interestingly, Within the cell, these enzymes, these peptidases or these proteases, and they also are called convertases because they convert a protoenzyme or apoenzyme into a formal accurate form. That's one of the roles they do, making it from inactive to, uh, to active, for example. They also, again, generate multiple peptide fragments, each of which is a protein, which can carry out quite a diverse role from the parent protein, if indeed it had any actual biological function at all. So in other words, it's not a one gene, one protein uh, world at all, obviously. You can have one gene, you can have multiple transcripts because of splicing, for example, alternate splicing, uh, alternate levels of expression of exons and introns even. Uh, and, and then beyond that, once the transcript is made, the transcript has to be processed and then translated. And even when the polypeptide is translated, the, the protein itself can go through further modification. That's what we're talking about here. And ultimately, of course, this is going to link up with the hepatocellular carcinoma. So let's get started with this, uh, this segment. And first of all, there are clinical aspects of this uh, this proteolytic degradation. And I'm going to try to talk a little bit about that. And I'm also going to talk about, of course, the mode of action because this is authentic biochemistry. So we do that. <laughs> okay, so there's one class of proteases called serine proteases. And we're going to talk about those first. Then we're going to talk about zymogen activation and its control. We're going to talk a little bit about leukocyte elastases and we're going to talk about, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, convertases and one of the classic utilization of proteases to be called convertases is to take a proto-hormone and turn it into an active hormone when that hormone is indeed a polypeptide, right? All right, so first of all, serine proteases. They're members of a really large group of proteolytic enzymes. And all of them have an active site, serine, okay? So when you have a serine protease, it means the, the one of the active amino acids in the enzyme itself is a serine. Now, if you don't recall what the R group is of serine, you should have these memorized, actually. 
Just remember that the, the most important element of the serine R group is its hydroxyl group. It's hydroxyl group, okay? So you've got an active site serine residue that plays a really a crucial part in the enzymatic activity. That's why they're called serine proteases. Um, all these enzymes cleave peptide bonds, uh, and they all do it by a very similar mechanism. And But they differ way substantially in their specificity and how they're regulated, right? Two major paradigmatic judgments by the cell. <clears throat> so there are qualitative differences. There are quantitative differences. There are relational differences, and there's are, there are modal differences when we talk about anything in the cell. And I would say the proteases actually fit all of those major categories of judgment. If you don't know what that means, um, oh, well, I'll explain some other time. So serine proteases include things like the pancreatically uh, secreted uh, proteases, and these are trypsin, chymotrypsin, and the enzyme elastase. And you also get various tissue intracellular proteases. Uh, for example, the leukocyte elastase, as I said, leukocyte being just a white blood cell. The protohormone convertases, or PCs, are also in many different cell types. Some of the enzymes of blood clotting cascade are serine proteases. Some of the enzymes of complement in an aspect of the immune response related to immunoglobulins are also serine proteases. In fact, many of the serine proteases themselves are synthesized as inactive precursors. And what we call that are zymogens. And those are actually activated by, guess what? Proteolytic processing. So proteases are proteolytically processed by other proteases. And then those um, subunit proteases are the ones that go to work to generate yet other protein peptide fragments that end up having very useful and important diverse functions in the cell. So you get the idea of all the elaboration here and how why, why they might be very useful in the cell. So now the mechanism of serine proteases in general, we teach this in biochemistry class when students get to learn a little bit about enzyme mechanisms, right? Um, basically, I'm going to go through this pretty quickly because we, this is a podcast. So I'm not showing you this on a slide. If we were doing this on a Verev Med lecture uh, where we were doing a video, I would show you the slide. And sometime I'll do that for you. But basically, the serine proteases have a catalytic triad. And uh, that's three amino acids that play a role there, a spartate, a histidine, and a serine. And, they, and what happens is you convert the active site serine basically to a powerful nucleophile, okay? And what you generate inside the bed, uh, of, uh, you know, the, the well of the enzyme is something called an oxyanion hole or pocket. And that facilitates the formation of this tetrahedral transition state, which is going to carry out, of course, catalysis. Uh, finally, once that's made, once that transition state is made by the interaction of those three amino acids I just told you, the aspartic acid and the histidine and the serine, basically doing a lot of maneuvering with hydrogen bonding without going into much more detail than that, but basically it's stabilizing unique hydrogen bonds between those three amino acids. And by the way, these amino acids are not next to one another in serine proteases. They're in different uh, parts of the sequence, okay, different loci of the sequence. 
So the classic is aspartate 102, histidine 57, and serine 195 as your classic serine protease. All right, anyway, once you make that oxyanion whole by pulling the hydrogen away from that serine hydroxyl, you get an acylation of the active site serine, and you get what's called a covalent intermediate, um, and then you get a subsequent spontaneous release of the product, which now is going to be studied with one, one protein. Now you're going to have two peptide fragments. So some serine proteases uh, mediate responses like zymogen activation, which I was just talking about. You can also get premature activation, uh, and here's a clinical pearl. If you get premature activation of serine proteases, you can get acute pancreatitis or inflammation of the pancreas. Because remember, these serine proteases, the ones we're talking about here, uh, are secreted by the uh, pancreas, right? They're digestive enzymes, basically. Um, the leukocyte elastase has a role in pulmonary emphysema, okay? So that's something that we could elaborate on and talk about that disease etiology sometime. And the protohormone convertases, like their relationship to all other proteases and, bio and biological roles therein, are also associated with various kinds of disease that are linked to peptide hormone dysfunction, Okay. All of those are serine proteases. So the zymogen activation, basically, I'll just give you an example. You get, an, uh, you get a protein called trypsinogen, and it gets enteropeptidase activated to trypsin. And trypsin helps um, do that activation by enteropeptidase. Then once you get trypsin, trypsin then can convert proelastase to elastase. It can also convert chymotrypsinogen to chymotrypsin and procarboxypeptidase to carboxypeptidase. Okay, all of those enzymes now that I just talked about are controlled by trypsin after its conversion via the enteropeptidase and help with its own catalytic activity by converting trypsinogen to trypsin itself. There's one more thing trypsin does, which is really interesting. There's a prolipase, which is converted to a lipase. Of course, the substrate for that enzyme is going to be a, a, a neutral lipid triacylglycerol. So very important uh, enzymes in terms of converting proteins, and in, in this particular instance, this particular trypsin pathway, uh, lipids into useful um, intracellular products. So... Chymotrypsinogen is one that we talked about. It starts off with a 245 amino acid protein product. Trypsin then generates two fragments, a 15 amino acid amino terminus peptide, and the second one, second peptide after that cleavage between 15 and 16, a 16 to 245 peptide. Now, that gives you chymo trypsin, that's the 16 to 245, but you have to remove two more dipeptides. And so those two more dipeptides are removed from chymotrypsin. And what you generate is alpha chymotrypsin, which is active, which has an A chain and a beta chain, where there's a linkage between amino acid 13 and 16. And then there's also the linkage between the beta chain and the C chain, 
between 146 and 149 amino acids. So you end up actually with three different protein products. You have an A chain or alpha chain, a B chain or B chain or beta chain, and a C chain. And each of those can carry out um, their own individual proteolytic activity, but they can also form disulfide bridges between certain of those fragments and generate yet other unique proteases, okay? So let's talk about this quickly. The mechanism and the activation of then of this chymotrypsinogen. You get a cleavage of the arginine 15 and isoleucine 16, okay? And that's going to lead to a conformational change in that protein. Of course, it's going to give you a new carboxyl group, a new amino group, because you just did a proteolytic uh, peptide bond break. The new amino terminus turns in and interacts with the spartite 194, spartate 194, and that's within the interior, you know, within the bed, within the well of the molecule. That amino group must be protonated for the enzyme to be active. So pH can partially control this whole operation. So there's an interaction between positive and negative charges in the nonpolar region, and that triggers other conformational changes. So you have methionine-192. It moves from a buried region of the protein in the zymogen to the surface in the active enzyme. Residues-187 and 193 also become more extended. And ultimately, these all those conformational changes give rise to substrate binding site. The cavity will not exist. The substrate binding site cavity does not exist in the zymogen. Okay? So you get the idea of how this works. So basically, it's turning it on. Um, you also have a transitional complex that's stabilized. The whole transitional complex is stabilized by hydrogen bonds, of course, and they can only form in the active enzyme. So that's the main chain amino of glycine-193. And that is the oxyanion pocket, which will allow the oxyanion pocket to become functional. And actually, there are other conformational changes, some of which are minor and some of which are major. So here's this clinical uh, aspect. Acute pancreatitis is a premature activation of a zymogen, okay? So how can that happen? It could be triggered by trauma to the pancreas, okay? That can include things like disease state, uh, such as hyperinsulinemia, uh, which can be, of course, uh, aggravated by excessive amount of glucose in the blood, right, which is, of course, a feature of diabetes, both type 1 and type 2. Now, normally, that's prevented, the premature activation of the zymogen, okay? And, and how is it prevented? It, because you produce the enzyme, first of all, as the zymogen. So if it's a zymogen, it's not active. So you're not going to get a premature activation if you only have zymogen. Also because you store the zymogen in a protease-resistant vesicle initially. And there is a pancreatic trypsin inhibitor, or PTI. Remember, trypsin does the initial cleavage. So PTI itself is, again, constitutive protein in the cell. Uh, it's a very small protein. It's a mass only about 6 kilodalton. And it binds very tightly to the active site and it acts basically like a substrate but it doesn't cleave, so it basically locks up the activity of the enzyme completely. That is, it doesn't allow the conversion. All right. So what about the leukocyte elastase and the alpha-1 proteinase inhibitor, another protease inhibitor? So the leukocyte 
elastase is involved in a lot of inflammatory responses. Uh, that's why it's in the leukocyte. It's controlled by something called the alpha-1 proteinase inhibitor. Of course, it's a serum protein found in the blood, and it's secreted by the liver. So, so the liver secretes a lot of proteins too, not just the pancreas, of course. In fact, the liver produces more types of proteins and enzymes than the pancreas does. So a member of the serpent family, which are serine protease inhibitors, catch that, serpent serine protease inhibitors, and that those are all themselves a part of this inhibitor protease family. There are a lot of variants of the inhibitor with reduced activity, and they're associated with something, uh, some kind of diseases. For example, pulmonary emphysema, which is, of course, a degenerative lung disease. You get a damage to the protein elastin, okay, because there is something wrong with the inhibitor, and the inhibitor doesn't inhibit this protease production, right? It's because the, the alpha-1 proteinase inhibitor doesn't function. So you get too much elastase. The elastase breaks down elastin, which is in the lung, and that can induce pulmonary emphysema. Okay? Smokers also have a decreased activity of the inhibitor for reasons that have to do with alterations of gene expression and also uh, dysfunction of that proteolytic cascade we were talking about. And also plain lung damage can cause this, such as asbestosis can, can uh, mediate this, and various other kinds of lung damage. And that's because of the oxidation of a specific active site methionine, which I mentioned briefly a few minutes ago, and it generates a methionine sulfoxide. That's especially a problem in heterozygotes for the defective inhibitor gene because it remains latent, uh, although when it builds up high enough, that's when you get a disease state. Uh, if, it's, if it's not in a heterozygote, it's in a homozygote, um, those, those people don't survive. So the alpha-1 proteinase inhibitor and other serpenes are probably also involved in other degenerative diseases. So we need to take a much closer look at these uh, inhibitors of the enzyme whenever we're looking at diseases, because sometimes they play a major role in uh, very occult ways. All right. So this whole serine protease family, again, what are they? Trypsin, chymotrypsin, and elastase. Those are the th three big members of the family. They're all structurally related, uh, as are they related to other enzymes simply called esterases, right? Because they break ester bonds. Uh, what kind of other esterases? Butyryl esterase, liver allyl esterase, and acetylcholine esterase. That's right. The enzyme important in controlling the level of the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. And they have a very similar active site. So trypsin has this glycine aspartate serine glycine, uh, and then elastases have a glycine glutamate serine alanine. Both of those times is the active serine that matters. So you can generate evolutionary trees of all these different serine proteases and get an idea of probably how these genes duplicated over time uh, in nature. Although what causes those duplications and what leads down vectorial uh, pathways, that's, that's a curious phenomenon that we're just not too sure how that works, right? But clearly that does happen. Uh, and clearly it's, it's something that we have to keep in mind of because people aren't normally measuring all of these serine proteolytic activities. And so a lot of diseases can go occult for a long period of time simply because uh, that it was never recognized 
that uh, there was a proteolytic processing of an enzyme. So you had no mutations in the gene. You had no mutations in the splice variants of the RNA, seemingly no mutations in the protein itself. So that means that so it would still be a substrate for these partial proteolytic processing events. But there might be something wrong with, for example, as I just pointed out, protease inhibitors. Right? There's a lot to consider here. Uh, and I, you know, I don't want to bog you down with the detail, but of course, everything is in the detail when you talk about biochemistry. So there's other serine protease families. So like, for example, if you look at lower organisms like bacteria and fungi, some of those serine proteases are trypsin-like and others are not. So there's subtilisin and there's an aspergillus protease and they have an active site sequence, which is very similar to what you find in trypsin. In both the sequence and even in the tertiary structure of subtilisin and in that aspergillus protease, um, you, you have a lot of tertiary structural similarity, but between those two, you have more of that tertiary similarity than you do to trypsin. But however, the relay mechanism, it's called the charge relay mechanism, still works. So it looks like that's a process of what we call convergent evolution. And in, actually, until recently, there have been no um, mammalian homologs of subtilizin known. But recently, isolated, actually in the last 10 years, is a pro-hormone, pro-protein convertase. And that enzyme, at least in vitro, seems to have a subtilizin-like activity. So when the more you look, the more you find all this variation. So that allows me then to get into these human pro-protein convertases. Again, they're called PCs for short. There's at least seven of them, and they're very similar to the subtilisins, uh, which are all basically serine proteases. What these protein pro-protein convertases do is they do lots of different really important physiological functions. One of them is to convert pro-insulin to insulin and also process many peptide hormones besides insulin such as neuropeptides, <laughs> in fact, growth factors, where we talk about acetylcholinesterase. The specificity varies, as you might guess, allowing for differential processing, but they, but they have to cleave at a certain paired basic residue. And sometimes that's presented on a beta turn when you're talking about secondary structure of the protein. It's, they are expressed differentially in various tissues, these human proprotein convertases. And they're expressed differentially, especially in things like uh, in, in locations like endocrine glands and neural tissue, right? like in the CNS. They're produced as precursors, of course, which themselves have to be processed. And sometimes these convertases are autocatalytically processed. So we're also involved in processing of various other proteins, such as exo exogenous viral and toxin protein precursors. So some of which the products of that proteolytic degradation will render them no longer toxins, and sometimes they'll generate a more potent toxin, depending on the activity and the latency phase of those proteases. So insulin, actually, when you look at how insulin is made, is a good example of these proto-hormone convertases. You get a messenger RNA made from the DNA for insulin in mammals. It's about 600 uh, ribonucleotides long. Um, it, and you need, of course, that messenger RNA 
and you need the uh, transfer RNA and the ribosomal RNA all functioning to make a pre-pro-insulin protein, uh, which ha has a molecular mass of about 11.5 kilodaltons. Uh, that's happening. That, that, that protein is ending up initially in the rough endoplasmic reticulum. Um, and there are already three segments of the protein you can isolate there. Now, once that protein gets into the Golgi apparatus, there are multiple cleavages of that pro-protein that allow you to take the pre-pro-insulin protein, which is 11.5 kilodaltons, and generate the pro-insulin, which is now down to 9 kilodaltons, and then ultimately um, one more stage of proteolytic processing, again happening in the Golgi, uh, in the presence of zinc, uh, when there's a divalent cation form, which is the most common, of course. And then you ultimately then make insulin, which is a 5.5 kilodalton protein, uh, which is composed of an A chain and a B chain. And those are held together by disulfide bonds because of cysteine residues between the A chain and the B chain. There's also a C peptide, which has another role entirely. It used to be thought it was just a degradation product. So ultimately, you then have these three different components. You have the 5.5 kilodalton insulin, which is an A chain, the B chain. And then you have this other uh, C peptide, which is, again, about uh, four, um, well, about 3.5 kilodaltons, actually. All right. So that's what happens with insulin. Um, there are precursors of protein convertases. So, for example, if you look at the bovine PC protein convertases, you have PC1 and PC2, and they have various signal domains and prosegmental domains and catalytic domains. So PC1 is synthesized as about a 99 kilodalton protoform. It's converted to an 87 kilodalton major active form, which itself is nearly, nearly completely cleaved to a 66 kilodalton active form all with the neuroendocrine cells in the bovine system. Then you get pro-protein convertase 1, ultimately is an enzyme that is largely responsible for the first step in the biosynthesis of insulin. So see, there's a mammal that does it slightly differently. You have a C-terminal domain called the P-domain, and it can function in sorting and in membrane attachment. And the pro-region can also act as an inhibitor of the enzyme itself, of the, of the protein convertase. So you get about, you see, you got, you're starting to see all this elaboration, right? It's amazing. Uh, I mentioned one more um, uh, uh, pearl uh, in terms of clinic, clinical manifestation. It's PC1 deficiency, and you do get PC1, of course, in man. Serine proteases of T lymphocytes, right, T cells, pr provide, of course, what normally cell-mediated immunity to infection. So you have serpents, remember those are inhibitors of proteases. And they control the recognition of antigens, and they have an effector function and a homeostatic control over unleashing T lymphocytic activity. Okay, and that's all done through an inhibition of serine protease targeting. So serpents, serpents, excuse me, are important promoters of cellular viability through their inhibition of what are called from the T cell, you'll love this term, executioner proteases. And so that affects the survival and development and the long-lived formation of what are called memory T lymphocytes. So we're about ready to stop here. 
Uh, we're at about the end of this cycle, and I don't want to overextend my 30-minute range. Um, all I want to tell you, though, is one final thing where, where uh, to remind myself, we were discussing um, different types of judgments, and I told you that there were modal judgments, and I wanted to let you know that you have to break that down into problematic, which basically allows you to ask whether or not a phenomenon is even possible. And the, you think of these judgments as like judgments made within the cell. Then there is called esoteric, esoteric mode, modality, which is whether or not that judgment made by the cell is true or not. And then ultimately apodictic, and that's whether or not it's self-evidentially true or false. All three of those types of judgments occur in the cell, and they have to occur in a um, non-stochastic way, right, a non-random way, um, so that they can deal with all the transformations the cell has to do. So I'm going to sign off here. Uh, again, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry, and I promise you next time you'll see where all these proteases kick in on HCC.